Welcome back to the Seeking Proof Finding Grace podcast. I'm your host, Ron Campbell, and this week, as with every week, I want to challenge you and encourage you with the most important fact in the entire universe. God loves you. Now, last week, we started looking at this question of the resurrection, and the reason why is critically important to the journey that we're about to take when we look at this question of are we created or have or we evolved from just a cosmic accident. The reason this is important is what we are going to find over the next weeks and months as we look at this question of our creation or evolution is we're going to find some very smart people who make some very philosophically questionable statements. Because this idea that if we follow the evidence where it leads us, that we should be able to draw a conclusion based on the evidence at hand, well, that's going to be problematic at times because the evidence may in fact point directly to a creator. And so we're going to find people kind of drawing back and doing a little bit of a David Hume on us here. Well, we, we can't look at that. We can't analyze that. We have to wait longer. We have to wait for science to come up with a different answer, even though science has given us a very good answer. What we want to do, and we talked about this all the way back in episode one as we started this journey together, we want to follow the evidence wherever it leads us and draw a good conclusion based on the evidence at hand. We want to be honest with ourselves and we want to look at the evidence that we've got and determine exactly where we're going. This question of the resurrection is a great example of that. Because what we'll see as we look at this is when we look at the evidence of what occurred, there are a great many very smart people who are willing to get all the way up to the point of admitting a great many facts that we're all going to agree upon tonight and then draw back and refuse to make the, refuse to actually draw a conclusion and say, well, from a historian's perspective, we just can't say what happened. Well, the events occurred. Logically speaking, it's correct for us to try to make the best determination possible rather than simply to say, we recognize that the event occurred, we're simply not going to make a judgment. That's not the best way to approach this. To find the truth, you need to look at the evidence and draw a conclusion. And unlike David Hume, we're not going to take off the table any possibilities because what we want to do is analyze based on the evidence at hand what is the most likely explanation for what we're seeing. So as we jump into tonight's discussion, again, I want to set the stage. We talked about this last week where we are. 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, we have a very different picture than most of us can imagine because on this side of the events that occurred, for us, it's history. For some people, it's become mythology in some ways. You know, a great many people think the events of those, those days in Jerusalem are some vast conspiracy theory, some Vatican conspiracy that was cooked up to keep all of us in the dark or to fool all of us or to control all of us. The problem is there was no Vatican. There was no church. There were a few dozen very scared Jewish people who had no idea what had just occurred. They had identified somebody in Jesus that they thought was the Messiah, and they thought he had come to free the Jewish people from Roman tyranny. They thought he had come to sit on the throne of David, his his father, they thought he had come to bring Israel back, to restore Israel and create a kingdom that would last for forever. But then he died. And the Romans crucified him and beat him to death, and no one knew what to make of that. Least of all his disciples, even though he had told them it was coming, 
His disciples were maybe the most confused of anybody. I love this quote from N.T. Wright in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. This maybe sums it up better than anybody else I've ever seen do. He said, This subversive belief in Jesus' lordship over and against that of Caesar was held in the teeth of the fact that Caesar had demonstrated his superior power in an obvious way by having Jesus crucified. But the truly extraordinary thing is that this belief was held by a tiny group who for the first two or three generations at least could hardly have mounted a riot in a village, let alone a revolution in an empire. And yet they persisted against all the odds, attracting the unwelcome notice of the authorities because of the power of the message and the worldview and lifestyle it generated and sustained. And and whenever we go back to the key text for evidence of why they persisted in such an improbable and dangerous belief, they answer, it is because Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. And this provokes us to ask once more, why did they make this claim? I love that quote, and it sums it up so very perfectly what we're looking at here. The Romans have crucified and killed Jesus. This idea of proclaiming him king and messiah, it doesn't make sense to anybody. It was certainly not, and we talked about last week, it was not held within the Jewish belief system that this is what the messiah would do. It wasn't held in the Jewish belief system that this is what the resurrection would look like. Nobody in the ancient world believed this is what was going to happen. And this is what turned things so dramatically on their head during those days around Passover 2,000 years ago. Jesus is crucified on Friday. We have Saturday hopelessness and gloom and fear that the, the Jewish authorities are coming after them next. And on Sunday morning, when a few of his female followers go to the tomb, trying to properly prepare the body, the unthinkable happens. So let's step in and look at this, at, the, at five key pieces of evidence that we're going to see that we need to draw a conclusion on, and let's see where that takes us. Okay, number one, and we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this in this podcast. We'll spend more time down the road on this question. There is some idea out there that Jesus wasn't a real person. Legitimate historians, and, and let's again get off the internet and perhaps not the best place to get all of your information from. And I do recognize the irony of making that statement on a podcast. So don't get me wrong. I, I, I get the irony of that statement. But if you look at genuine historical scholarship, nobody believes that Jesus was not a real person. Okay. So I'm going to quote two sources and these are outside historical sources. One of them is Joseph uh, is Josephus, the Jewish historian Josephus provides two quotes. You will see some people screaming on the internet, Josephus has been discredited. No, he hasn't. That's not true. There is one quote where Josephus uses Jesus as a reference to the readers, uh, referencing the, uh, the death of Jesus' brother James, James the Just, the, one of the leaders of the early church. We'll talk about him in a bit. But Josephus uses Jesus as a point of reference for his readers. And the obvious conclusion you reach when you read it is, Josephus is using Jesus as a point of reference because everybody knows who Jesus is. So there's no historical dispute about that quote. The second quote, which actually talks about Jesus' death at the hands of Pilate, there's really little dispute over the majority of the quote. There are a couple of items that were probably added in by Christian supporters or folks sympathetic to Jesus down the road. 
But the critical portion of the quote for us, that Jesus was a real person and that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, nobody disputes or doubts that. That portion of the quote is considered historically sound by the vast majority of historians. So this idea that Jesus wasn't a real person, not a real thing. Don't Just don't even go there. Uh, the other historian is the Roman historian Tacitus. Uh, again, not a sympathetic source, and Tacitus confirms for us once again, Jesus is a real person, and he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea at that point. So again, th- there's no real question here. Um, the other thing that we're not going to discuss at length in tonight's podcast, in today's podcast, excuse me, is this idea that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. Again, down the road, we'll talk about this in more detail. Um, there's no question that he died on the cross. When the Romans scourged you, the scourging enough was in most cases enough to kill you. And crucifixion was absolutely enough to kill you, especially if you had been scourged, which was beaten to death prior to the process. The combination of the two, you simply did not survive. So the idea that Jesus survived the cross, which is an idea held out there by some, and we'll talk about it as some of the options, not medically possible even by today's standards. We will talk about this a great deal more down the road when we talk about the accuracy of the Bible and of the New Testament in question. Tonight, we're going to put those two points out there and we're simply going to move forward. I will quote, uh, I'll put in the uh, reference notes in the podcast, a great resource if you want to read a medical perspective, looking at this question of could Jesus have survived the crucifixion? Uh, Fantastic resource, and I will put that in the notes to today's podcast as well. So the first point that we're going to agree on as we look at this going forward was Jesus was a real person, and he was in fact crucified and killed by the Romans. So fairly straightforward. That That is a historical piece of evidence that the vast, vast majority of historians absolutely agree to, whether they're biblical historians or otherwise. Number two is that Jesus' tomb was found empty by his female followers. Now, a couple of reasons that's important. During, in this ancient culture, the testimony of his female followers would have been considered to be not adequate. In a a legal hearing, the testimony of a woman in this day and age would not have been considered to be nearly as important as the testimony of a man. And that's just the culture that they lived in 2,000 years ago. When you look at this question, If the disciples were going to make this up, they wouldn't have said the female followers found Jesus. By the way, while we were all cowering in fear, the female followers are portrayed as being dedicated to Jesus, still serving Jesus, trying to preserve his body and do the right thing because they all believed he had died. And they're the ones who bravely step up to go face the Roman guard who's guarding the tomb. This is the interesting thing. The way the story has been presented presents the disciples as cowards, the female followers as the experts, the the witnesses who saw this and witnessed it. It's everything you wouldn't do if you were making this story up. And I want to look at this from the perspective of Matthew's version from Matthew 28, starting in verse 11. Matthew relays to us that the Sanhedrin, the religious leadership, didn't want the disciples stealing Jesus' body and claiming that he rose from the dead. So they posted a guard at the tomb. The problem is when Jesus does raise from the dead, the guards take off in fear of what's happening. And so now they've come back to the Sanhedrin going, look, this is everything that occurred. Listen to what the Sanhedrin says and listen to the response. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. 
And when they had assembled with the soldiers and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. The reason they're saying that is, you as a soldier, if you had failed in your job and let the disciples come steal the body away, your life would be given in forfeit. So your life would be demanded as forfeit for having lost the body. So they're telling him, don't worry, we'll cover for you if this actually what happens. So the, they, the soldiers, took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, when was this written and why is this important? We can date the Gospels. And the reason I'm going to say this, and there'll be some who say this is too early, is there are things that the Gospels themselves are missing. The book of Acts is going to be our, our dating point where we look at the date that the Gospels were written. There are several critically important things that are missing from the book of Acts. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is our historian in the Bible. He, he writes in enormous detail. Several key critical points are missing in the book of Acts, and that tells us from a historical perspective they haven't happened yet. Jerusalem hasn't fallen. That occurs in 70 AD. Paul, the disciple, the apostle, is still alive. He dies around 66 AD. On top of that, Jesus' brother James is, is killed in Jerusalem around 61 AD. None of those things are recorded for us. Now, there is no question the fall of Jerusalem and Paul's execution would absolutely be included for us. Acts ends with Paul in jail, but still alive. So we know with a high degree of certainty that Acts was written prior to Paul's execution. The missing fact of James' execution as well would absolutely have been included because Luke goes out of his way to also record key events in church history, including the death of several other key leaders in the church. James the Just not being included in that list is absolutely good proof that the, the book of Luke was written prior to 61 AD. Luke was written after Matthew and it was written after Mark. Because Luke uses either Matthew or Mark or both as source material. And so when you date those back, that absolutely puts the book of Matthew well into the 50s. Why is this important? If Matthew is written in the 50s, that means these events are occurring 20 years or so after Jesus has died. There are going to be people in Jerusalem who can discount what he's saying. So if, in fact, as Matthew tells us, that this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day, that the disciples came and stole the body. That had to be what was being said in Jerusalem at that day, because if he wrote it and it wasn't true, people would have immediately jumped on that and said, that's not true. They also would have said, the body was never lost. Jesus is in that tomb over there, and the Sanhedrin would have happily rolled open the tomb and sold tickets and made it a show, to destroy the Christian faith. The Christian church comes to life, begins in Jerusalem, the same place Jesus is crucified, the same place he's buried, and the same place the disciples say he rose again. If it didn't happen, the empty tomb being in Jerusalem would have been the end of the early church unless it was really empty. So again, from a historical perspective, the tomb was empty. So Jesus is a real person. He dies at the hands of the Roman governor, He's buried in a tomb, and the tomb is found empty. 
These two facts are very straightforward. And again, the majority of historians are going to look at those facts and agree, yes, those, those events did occur. Number three, and this is going to be where we really start to see the change, the change in the disciples. And this is what N.T. Wright is talking about. The disciples go from a bunch of cowards, just living in fear that the Sanhedrin is coming after them next, not realizing how unimportant they are, to three days later suddenly standing up and saying, Jesus has risen from the dead. And from the day of the resurrection for the next 40 days, Jesus shows himself alive. You remember the quote that we read from Paul last week? Jesus shows himself alive by many infallible proofs. He shows himself to the disciples. He shows himself to James, Jesus' brother. He shows himself to Paul. He shows himself to 500 people at once. All of these things as they're happening is what's building the early church. I want to quote from John chapter 21 as we're looking at this. And this is the story of Thomas. We all know him as Doubting Thomas. Why was Thomas doubting? Okay, so Jesus shows up to meet with the rest of the disciples and Thomas, Thomas isn't there. And Thomas comes back and plainly says, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You know, we call him Doubting Thomas. Does anybody really blame him? I mean, again, this is something that defies belief. That's the point. When we look at something and people say, well, this is a miracle, therefore it couldn't have happened. That's the point. If it was something ordinary and regular, well, of course it could have happened. So why would it change anybody? No one would believe anything differently. But in this case, this is a miracle of such enormous magnitude, it changes all of these people's lives, and it changes forever the shape of the world going forward. So Thomas saying, look, I know you all say you saw Jesus. Thomas is going to, what's going through Thomas's mind are the only excuses that everybody comes up with to try to explain this away. Y'all were, you guys were hallucinating. I don't know what was going on. You guys had a little too much wine after dinner. Something's wrong. And unless I see Jesus and can physically touch him and see his wounds healed, I am not going to believe that he's raised from the dead. That's a reasonable response. So what John is recording for us here is a pretty reasonable response on Thomas's part. But that's not where the story ends. Starting in verse 26, And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace to you. I like to think he kind of jumped into the room. Jesus just appears into the room. Even though the doors were shut, he suddenly appears in the room and says, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Okay, that's going to do it. Thomas is right there looking at Jesus, fully healed, raised from the dead, physically standing there, and he says, Thomas, come here. Come here. Come touch the wound. You want to see this wound is healed. Come look at it. You want to see the nail marks in my hands. Come look at them. Jesus says, let's deal with your unbelief right now. And Thomas did what I think anyone would do. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. He recognizes if Jesus has physically been healed and physically raised from the dead, he's not a man. He's exactly what he claimed to be, God on earth with us, God in the flesh. 
And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What we're talking about here is this idea. People will say, well, you believe something you don't understand, and it's true. I wasn't there. I can research this. I can study. I can read books. I can look at all of the logical arguments in the world, but I wasn't there. But what I do know is this. There were 11 disciples who, who absolutely believed that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that it was over and done, and they were hopeless, and they were fleeing, and they didn't know what to do. And suddenly, these same 11 disciples, who before were ready to flee and run for their lives, were suddenly ready to take on the world. And the same Sanhedrin that had put Jesus to death that they were so scared of, in a few, in a few weeks they would look at and go, bring it on. You have nothing that could possibly scare me. These disciples were ready to take on the world, and there is no explanation for that other than, what the, explan other than the explanation they've given. We saw Jesus physically healed and raised from the dead. We spoke with him. We ate with him. He looked at us and said, if you don't believe here, touch the wound in my side. Touch the wound in my side and believe. Their testimony and the change in their lives is a proof that cannot be explained. And it's a proof that carries enormous weight for us today. When Stephen, not one of the original disciples, but one of the early leaders of the church, when Stephen is stoned to death in Jerusalem just a few short years later, and this is where Paul the, Paul the apostle is still Saul, the persecutor at that point. But when Stephen dies, if this is all a scam, and they're all just hoping to get rich quick, or they're all hoping to become famous or do something. About the time Stephen is drugged outside of Jerusalem and he's stoned to death, that's going to be the end of it. Or when John's brother James is killed also by the authorities, run through with a sword, I believe. When that happens, that's the end of this. There isn't any more, we'll make up a great story and go. Nobody is willing to die for a lie. You see, they knew whether or not it was a lie. And they went to their graves professing that it absolutely happened. That event has to be explained as we look at this. And it wasn't just them. You know, we sometimes forget that there were so many people who were involved in this ministry. There were so many people who were there. These early eyewitnesses, you know, um, coming from Eusebius, I love this quote, and it really brings to light something that we tend to forget about. The works of our Savior were always present, for they were true. Those who were healed, those who rose from the dead, those who were not only seen in the act of being healed or raised, but were, all, but were also always present, not merely when the Savior was living on earth, but also for a considerable, considerable time after his departure, so that some of them survived even to our own times. What he's writing about there and what he's quoting is the early church fathers looked back at this and said, look, it wasn't just the 11 disciples. You had people like blind Bartimaeus, who Jesus had restored his sight. And Bartimaeus was one of those early witnesses. You have Jairus, the uh, ruler of the synagogue, whose daughter was raised from the dead by Jesus. You have Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead going into Jerusalem that set off this chain of events. You have all of these people who were healed, who were eyewitnesses. All of the, the way the early church grew was the eyewitness testimony of these people who said, I was there. 
And they not only saw Jesus raised from the dead, they were there and said, I was blind, but he healed me and now I see. And I followed him from that day going forward. There's a reason we know Bartimaeus' name and we don't know the other blind person who was healed. There's a reason that we know these things because these were the eyewitnesses who told these stories, who helped grow the early church. The early church fathers looked back at this and recognized and said, look, going into the first couple generations of the church, these people were alive. And they were powerful witnesses because in some cases they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And in some cases, Jesus, before he died, had healed them. So it was eyewitness testimony that drove this early church. You know, in looking at the clock, I think this is also probably a good opportunity to go ahead and stop this week. Let's go ahead and end where we're at, and next week we're going to pick back up with the last two pieces of evidence that we want to look at for the resurrection, okay? There's a lot to be said, and I don't want to cut any of it short, and I think it'll be better to just continue next week, and we'll, we'll pick up from there. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Seeking Proof, Finding Grace. As always, you can find us here on our YouTube channel. You can find us on Apple and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can find us on our website at prooftograce.com. You can always email us with questions at prooftograce at yahoo.com. And I look forward to seeing you next week when we finish this discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye-bye.